You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Behind the Police, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Behind the Police, a Behind the Bastards special mini-series about you know, the police in America, uh, some of the most persistent bastards in our nation's long and bastardful history. I'm Robert Evans, uh, the host and the the researcher and the writer. And my guest today is Jason Petty, better known as hip hop artist Propaganda. Prop, how you doing today? What up, what up, what up? Uh, socially and emotionally prepared for this train wreck. Awesome. Did you like how professional my introduction was? That was some NPR shit. Here's the thing, bro. Like you're mm-hmm. you are unmatched in intros and transitions. There's nothing Thank you. like this. Thank I you. want to be the voice. I want to retrain your self-talk voice and just continue to say <laughs> you nailed it. Even Thank when you. you didn't. Just even when I didn't. You nailed Beautiful. it. Beautiful. I, yeah. I love I will continue to point out when you fuck it up. And, pra- and praise you when you don't. Like now, wonderful intro, Robert. Very professional. Thank you, thank you. Way better than that time I just shouted Hitler. That was that was a train wreck. Yeah, I, so. I didn't know what to do with that one. I just was. <laughs> yeah. It was. Have you ever walked by like a wall of cords and just felt the need like? I going like especially like backstage somewhere <laughs> like in festivals. It I gotta organize so this. Yeah. Yes, no, or like I'm gonna yank them all out. It's gonna happen. Yeah. And it's like I'm holding my hand away. Like I, I, I can't be backstage. I'm gonna yank one of these out. I feel like that was like you and like the Hitler thing, to where you're just like, yeah, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Oh my god, I want to say uh, it. Yeah, because yeah. you can't script an introduction, right? Like that's the no. first rule of 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 broadcast is you can never script an intro. So we're we're no. we're left with me winging it. Yeah. So prop. Yesterday yeah. we talked about the origins of American policing with a focus on like the slave patrols, and that is the thing 
uh, like online since kind of this whole uprising against the police began. That's the thing everyone's been focusing on, that like police yeah. came out of slave patrols. And that is very true for a huge chunk of American policing. Today, we're going to talk about the other chunk because it was not just slave patrols. Because A sizable chunk of American policing came out of a desire to suppress folks, number one, that we today would call white, but at the time, kind of the people with money didn't really consider to be white. Um, mm-hmm. But also more than anything, it came out of a desire to police labor like the working mm. class. Yeah. So today we're going to kind of hit that other side of the um of the where cops come from. Yeah. Uh divide. Um Yeah. So this yeah. is a this is a lesson in intersectionality, guys. That's what's about it to is. happen right now. Yeah, and and like all good lessons in intersectionality, it comes from it includes uh people being racist when that's directly in yes. uh, opposition to their needs and and actual <laughs> benefit. Yeah. <laughs> A deep-seated <laughs> oppression. Yeah. And an yeah. oppression that's taken advantage of by the ruling class in order yes. to continue to yeah, mhm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And we going up north too. You know they free up there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh lord. <laughs> They're not. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. The North, the North. I mean, it was better than the Confederacy, but that's like it really saying, was. yeah, like vomiting in the toilet is better than vomiting on your friend's floor, which like, yeah. yes, but it's both are non-ideal. Asterisk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, you may not know this, but President John Fitzgerald Kennedy designated the week of May 15th to be National Police Week. I don't think we celebrated it this year. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I never heard that. Yeah, I must have missed that one. Um, yeah. During his speech announcing this, he stated that police officers had been protecting Americans since the birth of the United States. Now, Incorrect. we, of course, know that this is untrue. Uh, the first Incorrect. formal police department was started in Boston in 1838, and you know, slave patrols existed earlier, but they sure weren't protecting uh, people. Now, one of the inciting incidents that led to the creation of the Boston Police, um, who again, yeah, that's the first police department, was the mm-hmm. Broad Street Riot. And the basic story of the Broad Street Riot is that a funeral procession of Irish immigrants in 1837 ran into a volunteer firefighting company of U.S.-born Protestants who were on their way back from fighting a fire. And obviously, like now, I think most people, it's just like, oh, you know, Protestants and Catholics, they're all just sort of like, you know, relatively mainstream Christian denominations. But you got to remember, it was like it was like a huge deal when JFK became the first Catholic president. People were like, is he going to? Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's how like open to diversity and melting pot we are as a country that like it was a scandal that this fool was a Catholic yeah, <laughs> like I'm like yo, that's the you. That's just the other room of the same house. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. If you really want an idea of like how fucked up America has been about diversity, like yeah. we were like not even a decade away from putting a man on the damn moon, and JFK came to power, and people were like, "Is he going to take secret pope orders?" <laughs> so, oh yeah. And, and the news flash to every Protestant was like, you know, we was all Catholic. Yeah. Uh, until 500 years ago. I don't know yeah. if you know that, but we was all Catholic. Yeah. You know what I'm <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, it's wild. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, Catholics and Protestants back then re- had some real issues with one another. So this, yes. this Irish funeral procession like runs into the middle of this Catholic or a Protestant firefighting company, and the two just start beating the shit out of each other. And mm-hmm. all of this spills out into a riot that eventually involves one-fifth of Boston's population, which is like 15,000 people, which is still a pretty good-sized riot today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So ethnic tensions being what they were, the riot quickly turned into a race riot, uh, and Protestants burned 
burned and looted the entirety of the heavily Irish Broad Street neighborhood. Uh, um, just like Jesus would call them to. <laughs> yes, he was a he big just, fan of burning and looting. Just burning, you know, you turn the, you, it was like, hey, he flipped over the tables, he flipped yeah. over the temple tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those weren't like his homies' tables. Anyway. Yeah, and what did he, didn't he say burn the other cheek, something like that? Something I like may that. be missing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, very, very taking their religion seriously here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in decades prior um, to the, the Broad Street riot, merchants had been forced to finance their own guards to secure the transportation of their goods. Uh, establishing police, which were paid for by the Commonwealth, shifted the burden for protecting capital off of capitalists and onto the community. But mm-hmm. even prior to the establishment of the first police departments, law and order in the United States was primarily a for-profit endeavor and not a matter of public safety. Mm-hmm. Um, the Broad Street riot was kind of used as an excuse for like why we need a police force, but the, the, the tensions had been building and like frustration had been building and like, oh, we got to pay to take care of our own shit from you know the merchant class. So this was kind of an opportunity for them to get people on board. Yeah. Now, as we covered in the first episode, most policing in the English-speaking world prior to the 1800s was primarily a community affair. Enforcement of the law was done by members of the community who tended to rotate through shifts, keeping order in their own towns. Public spirit is generally the term used as what was like the primary method of social control in those days, okay. rather than centralized authority. And that is yeah. kind of the thing that like, I, I was just in the Seattle Autonomous Zone or whatever you want to call it, you know, may not be mm-hmm. really an autonomous zone. I don't think they've actually kind of firmly decided yet because uh, yeah. the police got back in briefly. But like public spirit is the primary manner of social control there. There's no centralized organization. Yeah. There's no like even mass kind of votes because people are so distributed there. But there is kind of a broad public spirit of like, oh, what if we don't have cops here, right? <laughs> like that's yeah. kind of the ideal uh, idea. Um, and that was kind of the way that it worked for a very long time um, in, in, mm-hmm. in particularly like English speaking chunks of the of the world. Um, yeah, but but not just that. Um, so yeah, this system began to fade out as like, oh, you know, as the kind of industrial age dawn and distinct yeah. communities that had been like more or less like somewhat isolated, at least uh, homogenized into cities and sprawling urban areas. Like now, you know, we say London, but back in the day, it was like a bunch of fucking towns and then a much smaller London. And then as yeah. they all turn into like this big fucking metropolitan area, um, yeah. this public spirit fades. So historian Henry Pringle writes that by the 1700s, the legal system had formalized enough that its architects were, quote, confident that they could, by a system of incentives and deterrence, rewards and punishments, bribes and threats, so exploit human greed and fear that there would be no need to look for anything so nebulous and unrealistic as human or as public spirit. So that's kind of like the real dawn of, of formalized law enforcement is, is okay. things get big enough and these people are like, public spirit, you can't really rely on it to do what I want it to do. And I'm mm-hmm. the guy with the money. So we yeah. need to build a system of deterrence and rewards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It scans. Yeah. Yeah. It scans. Yeah. So gradually, the yeah. <laughs> it keeps scans. And I was also going to say as a side note, the, and I hate, I, I hate the very, principle of what i'm about to say sure but at the old folks in the church would say it's true anyhow uh i absolutely love like the irish like culture oh yeah because it's just so irreverent and like they just don't take themselves serious everything is sarcastic y'all drinking and yeah. going to sing at parties and i'm just like 
you it just it's just your normal slang like hey old ball bag how you doing like you call your homeboy a ball bag that's a mm-hmm. scrotum fam yeah and that's what you refer to your friends as you refer to your friends as scrotums hey old ball bag and it's like look i respect that so much i just somehow oh, yeah. I, I, res- I respect them I, they're just ready to fight at any moment mm-hmm. y'all drink a lot you know what i'm saying and then when you got to america you created your own hood like just the south boston just southy irish pissy don't even don't even mess with your great like your grandmother ready to scrap like i <laughs> respect that so much yeah i love I, this is my favorite place to visit ireland i love the um like what you're talking about, like this idea that even with like your elected leaders, like you should kind of be able to shout at them, right? That's yeah. kind of a, there's a bit of that in England too. Like this idea that like yeah. and I, we I, we had a thing here and it happened in Minneapolis with uh, Mayor Frey, where like he had to go out to this crowd and like yeah. when he said something he didn't like, this crowd of thousands like told him to go the fuck home. Yeah, and we had that in Portland with our mayor. Like he showed up in the middle of this crowd to take questions, and everyone just told him like, "You had the cops shoot at us a bunch, and we don't like that, and you're a bad mayor." And everyone just got to like yell at the mayor. Yeah. That's how it ought to be with all elected officials. They should all have to stand in the middle of a crowd of their voters Dude. and get heckled when they fuck up. It's it, that's great. It's like yes, every elected official should have to do some sort of like open mic, like yeah. stand up, just dive bar mm-hmm. where you have to feel the heat. Dude, yeah. my my first few years of touring, like the heat of being like, okay, listen, it's it's almost it's it's eight fifteen. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's just pre-gaming, trying to figure out who they're going to hit on later. And I have to go up and rap for 15 minutes and try to convince this room to pay attention to me. For I got 10 minutes of attention to convince yeah. Like, that is the best school of hard knocks as like a live performer that anyone could ever. I feel like every mayor should have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like this, the pub, the, the whole public spirit thing. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of more people now where there's a lot more complexity. Totally. You need, you need more than just public spirit. But this yeah. idea that like, if everyone just kind of hates this dude, like he should have to stand in the middle of them and either yeah. try to convince them that they're wrong or at least just take the fucking fire for a right? while. Right. If you could take yeah. that fire and mm-hmm. or win some of us over, I would be like, you know what? Maybe. Okay. Maybe I was wrong about maybe this Maybe I was wrong yeah. about this dude. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, anyway, back to the fucking cops. So yes. um, gradually, the profit motive became the central motivating force behind law enforcement. So kind of public spirit moves aside for we just pay people to do this shit. Yeah. Um, and the change started at the level of the constable. Traditionally, constables had been unpaid members of the community who took turns at the job. But most citizens came to dislike taking their turn as constable, especially since each turn involved a one-year unpaid period of working to enforce laws that were often very unpopular. Because there was, like, centralized state authority, it just, there wasn't, like, super organized law enforcement. So, like, the king or whoever would make, like, a law that people didn't like, and then you would take your turn and you'd have to enforce that law. And that doesn't make you popular. No. Um, which is was an issue with the system, uh, who was making the laws. So, over time, deputies began to realize that the power of their office held other opportunities for profit. According to a paper on the development of private police by Stephen Spitzer of Northern Iowa University and Andrew School of the University of Pennsylvania, quote, once in office, the deputies soon found that profits could be gained from selling protective and investigative services or demanding rewards and fees in return for recovered goods. Deputies often made such a profitable trade of their offices that many were prepared to serve for nothing. So this goes hmm. from like this ugly job that you take because you have to to a job that, you know, because you kind of find a way to, 
you kind of fa- you kind of find a side hustles that yeah. your position allows you to exploit, and then it it becomes really profitable, even though there's not a salary for the gig. Yeah, yeah. And so you kind of freelance police at this point, right? Like that's yeah. the gig. So this suited early local governments in England and her colonies pretty well, um, because these these governments and these peoples, like just because of an aspect of the culture, felt a deep resistance to the idea of paying for a salaried police force. Individual constables who were successful in their jobs could sell their services to the highest bidder, augmenting their official duties with what was essentially private security work. The system made it over to the North American colonies. During the first decades of the 1800s, New York City police officers were noted as being more, quote, private entrepreneurs than public servants. Hmm. The same was true in Boston before and after the formal establishment of their police department. Spitzer and Skoll write, quote, since the main concern of the victim was restitution, they functioned then as personal injury lawyers operate today on a contingency basis, hoping to get a large part, perhaps half of the proceeds. So cops would kind of hang around like a like a bad lawyer. They would wait to see, oh, somebody just got robbed. Somebody just got beaten up. Mm-hmm. Somebody's store got broken into. And then they would show up and be like, hey, if I get that stuff back, can I have half of it? Like Sheesh. that was the, those were the first cops like yeah. in, in the north and stuff. Yeah, before there's like really police departments. You know, so like okay, so when you it's so crazy when you think of it in context, which is like the best thing to do as somebody that really wants to understand humans. It's yeah. like can you blame them for being like, you know, maybe maybe we should centralize this. What if like yeah, kind of like maybe we should come up with some sort of department that maybe yeah. they're above this, you know? Yeah, this kind of works. This is great. Yeah, yeah. this kind of sucks. You know what I'm saying? So you're like, hey, yeah. you know, it's maybe it's maybe it's I don't know. Maybe this maybe it's a bad bad idea the way we're doing yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely like you 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 kind of transition away from everybody taking turns as the cops to like cops being basically mercenaries and people are like God, mercenaries kind of suck. Dang, <laughs> like, I'm like, not a fan of this. That's strike two, guys. Like, yeah. you know? Yeah, so it's yes, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. Like you can't totally blame people for being like, well, what if we tried to like make this a a more official thing? Yeah, yeah. and like we can yeah. like identify him, and it's not just yeah. like it's not just like my neighbor Dave down the street that yeah. I can just trust this fool. Like I don't trust Dave. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, Dave's a they, shady son of a bitch. He's kind of shady, <laughs> man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, this was yeah, most police in this period worked as actually not even uniformed thugs, um just kind of thugs, protecting the businesses and streets that paid them uh, or as private detectives hunting down stolen goods or other criminals on a contingency basis. The mm. system provided no real benefit for the average person and only marginal benefit for the capital holding class. Hmm. See, this was back before the dawn of the industrial economy, and people weren't used to the idea of just working all of the time because that was their job. Farm labor was seasonal, and skilled laborers usually didn't work more than they needed to in order to live comfortably. Law enforcement officers kind of worked the same way. So these people would take enough jobs to maintain a decent lifestyle, and then when they had enough money, they'd stop working. So suddenly the constable would be like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything for the next couple of months. Like, I'm good. I had a big case. Like, sorry, you need help, but like... I, why would I work right now? I don't need to, and I'm not yeah. going to work if I don't need to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to make matters worse, at least for the business-owning class, uh, the way bounties were structured actually discouraged police from catching criminals. Historian James F. Richardson writes in his History of the New York Police, quote, The police reports published in the newspapers in these years are filled with accounts of instances in which the property was returned with financial rewards for the police officer, but in which the criminal was not brought to justice. The officer received a larger fee or reward for recovering the stolen property than he would have received for bringing the criminal in. Often the arrangement was consummated even before the robbery or burglary took place. An officer would be privy to a crime and after its commission would endeavor to recover the stolen property in return for a liberal reward. Part of the reward would then go to the thief as a share. (laughs) 
Sheesh. See, this is the sh- this is the shadow. So, yeah. like, you you mean to tell me by design the cop was crooked? Like, yeah, just, yeah. It's just baked into the. I am incentive. Like, listen to what listen mm-hmm. what what Professor yeah. Evans just taught you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I am incentivized to cheat. It is better for all of us. Yeah. If I just cheat. And y'all think, and that's what's crazy about like here's here's why like what just just pure unchecked capitalism does to your brain is you would think, oh yeah, you just it's just competition. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey man, hey dude, if you get my stuff back, I just want you to know like I'll pay you more if you get my stuff back. You were good at your job, I'm just gonna pay you more for it. It's like, well, I don't know, man. Maybe there's a way I can get both. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what if I just work with the guy that's going to steal your stuff? Like, that he doesn't way we want the all stuff. Win. He wants money. Yeah, this, yeah he doesn't <laughs> care. We, we all win in that situation. You got your stuff back. I made some money. Like, it just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's great. great. It's like a tax on rich people by, I don't know, not necessarily poor people. Well, maybe the thieves were. But, like, yeah. yeah. It's whatever. Yeah. So, up until the mid-1800s, policing in the cities of the American North had been a fundamentally reactive endeavor. Officers went off in response to specific criminal acts rather than say, seeking to prevent said acts. You know, there were some exceptions. Yeah. Sometimes people would be like, well, let's hire some officers to, like, watch this neighborhood where we have a bunch of shops or whatever. Mm-hmm. But generally, it was pretty reactive. Um, and th- as the first major metropolitan police departments were established in the 1830s and 40s, this started to change. These new police departments focused on the dangerous classes you remember hearing here that go. here we go the first episode yeah here and we go. dangerous classes were largely made up of poor immigrants who were mm-hmm. seen as being fundamentally criminal yeah. the idea began to spread that by patrolling surveilling and deploying force against these populations police could stop crime from occurring now whether or not someone counted as a member of a dangerous class had an awful lot to do with whether or not that person also counted as white the full <laughs> subject of what whiteness meant in the north in this period of time is much too complicated for yeah. a series that's already going to be complicated what is important to understand is that a lot of groups again that we all lump in as white today weren't really white yet during the mid-1800s this included at varying points Germans Italians Jews of all national origins and of course the Irish yes now Again, as I noted in the last episode, talking about this is is complicated by the fact that a lot of modern racists, or at least kind of people yeah. who like to deny the suffering of black people, will claim yeah. that like, oh, it was just as bad for the Irish, and it yeah. absolutely was not. Yeah. But also, anti-Irish bigotry was still a, a motherfucker. Like there was yeah. a lot of that going around. Yeah, no yeah. one's. Yeah, it's from 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 some, as someone from the black community, I'm like, okay, no one's arguing yeah. that the Irish were not not treated unfairly it was terrible yeah. what they went through it's not yeah come on guys it's not it the was same. not the same yeah I just, <laughs> yeah. it's like you know i like i am a you know cisgendered heterosexual male and when my wife got pregnant no part of me said we're pregnant yeah, that just like I can't stand when husbands say that. Yo, we're pregnant. I'm like, nigga, no, we're not. You, not, you understand? What I'm saying she is doing it while I'm in there with her. Nigga, no, you are not. I remember standing on the side of the room when my wife was about to go in labor, being like, women are magical superheroes because there, I don't know a single male on earth that could do this. So yeah. I'm like, no, no, man, it is not the same. Okay, it's not the same. 
we are not pregnant. Shut your mouth. All I got to do is go get weird fucking ice cream and, and Doritos. That's my job. Go get some ice cream and Doritos. She is cooking a human. We are not pregnant. So in the same way, I'm like, look, okay, yeah, we both going through this experience. I'm tired too. I got to get up and, you know, feed this child. It's three in the morning. I'm tired. But I am not the child's food source. The 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 milk ain't coming out of my boob. It's coming out yeah. of her boob. It is not the same. Just it's, and it's like that's not a diss. I'm not. This it's just it's just not the same. Like let it yeah. not be the same. You know. Yeah, it's okay that different groups suffer in different ways. It's okay. even in the same place. They, yeah, we we can we can we can explore the ways in which yes. the suffering is unique, and also the ways in which uh, it has common roots of origin totally. without conflating things. I'm not gonna play the oppression Olympics. Like that's yeah. what I'm not gonna do. I'm not playing the oppression yeah. Olympics. Anyway. Yeah, um, we're talking a lot about how police departments developed out of the desire for the capital holding classes to publicly fund the protection of their shit, but also the increasing populations and racial mixtures of American cities had a big impact on it, too. Mm -hmm. Race riots became increasingly common in the 1830s and 40s, as as well as other riots. There were just a shitload of riots in this period of time. And all this unrest helped sell the growing middle class on the idea of police departments. Policing also offered an opportunity for non-white groups of white people, like the Irish, to gradually gain social acceptance. The first Irish policeman in the United States is generally believed to be uh, have been a Bostonian dude named mm-hmm. Barney McGinniskin, which is an incredibly Irish wow. name. Fucking Barney Ooh. McGinniskin. Jesus Sheesh. Christ. <laughs> it's like they yeah. made him in a lab out of yeah, Jameson. Like, yeah. Is this a cartoon? <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah. So Barney McGinniskin was hired in 1851, and a local alderman was infuriated by this on the grounds that it would create a dangerous precedent. Irishmen, he continued, commit most of the city's crime and would re- receive special consideration from one of their own wearing the blue. Mm. Now, McGinniskin's career lasted only three years when the nationalist anti-Catholic Know Nothing Party took over the Massachusetts legislature. The Irish would not make major inroads into northern police departments until their population grew large enough that the Democratic Party realized they could guarantee Irish votes by giving Irishmen jobs on police departments. And that's why there's kind of a stereotype of the Irish police officer today. Like the paddy wagon went from being a wagon that you throw Irish people onto on their way to jail because they're all criminals to just like a term for a cop car because all cops are Irish. Like that, that, that change happened over the course of the wow. 1800s. Okay. Yeah. And it was kind of, it wasn't the only thing that had to do with this, but it was kind of a part of Irish people sort of becoming white, you know, yeah. as they kind of take up positions, helping to enforce the social order and stop mm. being kind of on the fringes of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing that happens. Shades rebellion type stuff. Okay. Yeah. I'm with it. Yeah. So one thing all scholars seem to agree on is that these early police departments were uniformly corrupt and violent. Local police party (laughs) ward leaders who were like local politicians in charge of neighborhoods and shit tended to appoint the police officers in charge of their neighborhoods. And society being what it was back then, these ward leaders often also owned the local tavern and ran the local gambling and prostitution racket. So if you were like, if you were like the equivalent of like a local like senator or whatever, or an alderman or some shit, mm-hmm. or a city council member, you would also own the bar in your area and yeah. you would run like the prostitution and gambling rackets and you would also run the police. Like, that's kind of yeah. how it worked. And so everybody was, it was just a bunch of gang bosses. It's just gangsters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah this yeah. is gang banging. Yes. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not that different from the way the a- ancient Rome worked too, to be honest. Like pretty yeah. similar. Yeah. 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 
So these ward leaders controlled both the police and the gangs, um, and b- both the police and gangs, mostly of local youths who would help organize voter drives and would uh, mm-hmm. intimidate people into making the right choices on voting day. The first police departments then were just one of several violent tools available to these early political bosses in the big yeah. cities of the north and you know, kind of the middle of the country. Uh, it wasn't really the middle. It would have been like the fringe at that point, but like whatever, yeah. you get what I'm saying. We get it. Yeah, police salaries were also augmented by bribes paid by the owners of illegal businesses. And I'm going to quote again from Dr. Gary Potter here. In this system of vice, organized violence, and political corruption, it is inconceivable that the police could be anything but corrupt. Police systematically took payoffs to allow illegal drinking, gambling, and prostitution. Police organized professional criminals like thieves and pickpockets, trading immunity for bribes or information. They actively participated in vote buying and ballot box stuffing. Loyal political operatives became police officers. They had no discernible qualifications for policing and little, if any, training in policing. Promotions within the police departments were sold, not earned. Police drank Mm -hmm. while on patrol. They protected their patrons' vice operations, and they were quick to use preemptory force. Yeah. 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 All scans. All scans. Yeah. What's funny to me is, too, is, like, when you, from the street level, part of the, like, outrage is when that cop all of a sudden just one day decides to act like an upright citizen. Yeah. You know, and and so if if you know, it's like any other relationship to where it's like okay, you and your brother, your little sister, like you're all scumbags, you're all stealing, you're yeah. all you're all sneaking out and then one day your brother goes, "You know, mom, Robert's been sneaking out all week." You're like, "What the f- So yeah, are, are you, you serious? Fool? Yeah. Are you serious, bro? Like, what are you talking about? You know why I snuck out? To steal you some weed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, yeah, anyway. So, it's like, when you when you look at it from that perspective, like, why somebody would, in turn, be like, man, you know what? I ain't got no time for you. I ain't got no mercy for y'all. I don't treat you no different than anybody else. Is because you don't act no different than anybody else. Yeah. It's fucking... Uh... Yeah, it, it it is weird that like in this period too, most people would have looked at like a dude who was like a fucking a pimp or a, a yeah a, yeah like as the same way they would a cop. Like you guys are two sides of the same fucking coin. Yeah, same and then thing. Like, yeah, this it, and we'll talk in a later episode. We will get to sort of the media operation that was kind of helped mm. to form what are what up until very recently were sort of the modern kind of mainstream consensus on police officers as like upstanding yeah. members of the community and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, yeah, if, for a very long time they were just seen as a, another kind of thug like yeah, yeah they're yeah. gang yeah. yeah they're gang yeah now samuel walker a professor and expert on the history of police accountability says that during this period municipal police were used as delegated vigilantes by the empowered classes of the new united states mm. that's an interesting term now yeah they were men entrusted with power uh, by those in power to use violence against again the dangerous classes who were seen as fundamentally criminal Interestingly enough, Walker seems to believe this idea of having delegated vigilantes grew into a central aspect of American identity. Quote, many of the worst abuses of official criminal justice agencies represent a form of delegated vigilantism. The public has tended to condone, if not encourage, police brutality directed against the outcasts of society or the mistreatment of inmates in penal institutions. 
So this thing that we all recognize, I think, I don't have to like yeah. go into detail about this idea that like we should have delegated vigilantes. It's okay if we have people we all agree should be fucked up, that some people go fuck them up. Like this really central aspect of, of American culture starts in this period with this idea wow. of like the police as delegated vigilantes to damage wow. the dangerous classes. <sighs> wow. Yeah. You know, and then, Yeah. It's the idea of like something built in its like in the very construction of the concept. Like it's it. A lot of times I compare this to when you try to tell somebody that like, hey, your story about like the founding of our nation wasn't. It's not as like pretty as you think it was. These are just you know what I'm saying. When you try to like start laying, you're missing some paragraphs. You're missing some paragraphs, guys. It's like how earth shattering. And just like I have to reconstruct reality, so like so when you so when you fast forward and we go, no, most of your most of our founding fathers were slave owners. They they weren't they were not at all Christians. I don't know where yeah. you get this founding on Christian yeah. thing from. You know what I'm saying? Like that's earth shattering. So I think like like this one this this series is gonna be that for people when you're they're just like, well, then is the sky blue? Can I trust my eyes with my hands? If like like the weird. This is multiverse level reality shattering for people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When I, you I, go back as far as you going, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, it, it's yeah. it's pretty it's interesting. It's interesting to me because like if you if you if you really sort of like dig into this idea of delegated vigilantism, um, yeah. as kind of a central thing that Americans believe in. Yeah. Um, you you you're, you're led to some uncomfortable kind of patterns of or, or, or pathways of thought because like yeah. So. One of the most popular methods used today even to justify the violence of the police is the supposed criminality or deviance of the people that the police are victimizing. Yes. Um, and I, I, it's interesting to me that you can draw – you really can draw a, a direct line between the delegated vigilantism that started in the 1800s, fucking wow. Batman, and yeah. the right-wing reaction to the murder of Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Like – yeah. Well, he's a hero. I mean, it was, yeah. the guy shouldn't have been back there anyway. Yeah, it's – Yeah, the, exactly. Oh, my God. It's Batman. Mm-hmm. Damn, it's for sure Batman. It's Batman. <laughs> yeah. I never thought of it because I'm always like, I because I'm more of the tra yeah. like I'm the 17 year old kid with a bag of Skittles cutting through a backyard. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Just trying to get home so my dad doesn't yeah. get mad. You know what I'm saying? And if some dude is like following me, my thought is I better beat this fool to a pulp because it's scary. Because yeah. I just don't want to, you know what I'm saying? So like I never thought of it as like, oh, this fool thinks he's Batman. Mm hmm. Dang. Yeah, this fool thinks he's the fucking he's the vigilante hero that oh we. Oh my god, I'm gonna I protect mean, the city from scum. Yeah, it's think gum shoes. It's the say. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's wow. why fucking cops have Punisher patches on their fucking cars. Yes! It's and it's why ever all sorts of people have fucking Punisher. Like it's it's this core, very core. Even maybe even more core than this like nebulous love of freedom that we have is like no. this. Yeah. There should be people who beat the fuck out of people I think are bad. Like it's just an origin story. Yeah. DNA strand. Okay. Yeah. Uh want to take an ad break real quick? Yeah, you know who won't beat the fuck out of people who don't deserve it in a misplaced desire for vigilante justice? These disembodied products mm -hmm. that yeah. are keeping the lights on. Kind of constitutionally incapable of of violence as yeah. as products. 
Yes, autonomously, that's mm-hmm. not the word I'm looking for. Ontologically, that's not mm-hmm. the word I'm looking for. I don't know. Okay, we're done. We're rolling some ads. Yes. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, and we are returned. So, the system of American policing would have its next major evolution in the late 1800s as a result of the growing, like, union movement. So, obviously, like, the the, the late 1800s is kind of the period in which uh, Americans really start to unionize. There had been unions in the United States. I think the first one was 1778. But their existence had been fairly scattered and of kind of minimal consequence until 1866, when the Hmm. National Labor Union formed to convince Congress to limit the workday for federal workers to eight hours. By the 1880s, union membership had spread widely across the private sector, and union strikes were constant across the big cities of the North. From 1880 to 1900, New York had more than 5,000 strikes involved more than a million workers. Chicago had 1,737, I think more than half a million workers. So I call these strikes, and I think modern historians call these strikes, and modern people would recognize them as strikes. But at the time, politicians, business owners, and like the the wealthy classes called them riots. Uh, And they turned their still fairly new police departments to the task of breaking up these riots. They (laughs) turned, yeah, yeah, that's where riot police start. It's like, oh, these people don't want to work more than eight hours a day. Better have the cops beat the shit out of them. Like, yo. (laughs) Yeah. Man, I... Before I did music full time, like I taught high school for, I taught ninth graders, you know, and uh, I just knew instinctually, you know, I was a young teacher, you know, I'm like 
my before I taught ninth grade, I taught seniors, and I'm like, I'm four years older than you, so I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna send you to the office. Like that's stupid. Like I'm not gonna try to act like some sort of boss here. Mm. I just figured it was real simple. I performed better for teachers I liked. Yeah, it's just yeah. that simple. So I'm just yeah, like, when you, yeah. I, so I just felt like this. You know, my best, the best way to have classroom management is if these kids like you. Yeah, it's the it's the thing that I that, that made so much sense when I was in Rojava in northeast Syria, which is the, yeah. the idea that like kind of the basic the stuff that we would consider like the core of law enforcement, which is like patrolling around a neighborhood, making sure shit's fine. Like that's often yeah. done by like local councils, heavily made up of like old folks like fucking grandma and stuff because like yeah you don't want to you don't want to be acting like a fucking piece of shit in front of your grandma Not like for the grandma <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying everybody yeah. straighten up fly right grandma come around the corner you know yeah so i did yeah that's that's the prince so i just i've never understood how the boss and i mean i got i got like an assistant and you know management and stuff like that so those people on my payroll and i just never like why would they work why would i who want to work for somebody they don't like? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, so if you just, if you run things, like, I just, it just seems so logical to me that you, it's like to, for bag security purposes, even if I'm going to just go to that, like, I'm just trying to secure this bag. I feel like my employees should feel like I like them. Yeah. I don't know. <sighs> Maybe that's why I'm yeah. not a cajillionaire. Cause yeah. Yeah. There's something yeah. I don't get. Caring about what people think. Yeah, um, man. I'll, ne- I'll never Being get accountable like that. to your fellows. Yeah. Being accountable, yeah. feeling like yeah. I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room all the time. That's why I hired an accountant, yeah. because you better yes. than me in this. Yes. Shout you know out to saying? my accountant, too. Uh, yes. Thank you, Sean. So, right. Yeah. Uh, again, so riot police kind of get started to break up these fucking um, these these what what are essentially strikes. Uh, what yes. are definitely strikes. Um, and you know it, this was a really good deal for the owners of businesses because since the police departments were now funded by the state, they got to break up strikes against their businesses without spending you know their own money to do it. And as Dr. Potter notes, the use of delegated vigilantes to break up strikes confused the issue of workers' rights with the issue of crime. So people might be sympathetic towards workers who are striking for a better deal, but they're not sympathetic towards criminals who are rioting. So you frame a strike as a riot, then you have a freer hand to just beat the shit out of everybody involved. Yeah, all these thugs. They're just thugs. They're just thugs. They had drugs on them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's drugs on them. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. So early police broke up strikes in the same way we're familiar with riot cops breaking up protests today, unspeakable mm-hmm. violence. But they also had subtler methods of achieving the same end. Public order arrests, which were essentially police declaring someone's behavior a crime for a nonspecific reason and then arresting them. These gave police a way to break up union meetings and gatherings before they could turn into strikes. In Chicago during this period, 80% of all arrests were public order arrests of workers. Wait. Between, uh, yeah. Wait. Yeah. So the infraction is y'all standing around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's the that's the okay. Yeah, you're loitering. Yeah. Yeah. You just now you're going to jail. Yeah. You ain't allowed to stand here. Yeah. Again, you can make some comparisons to all the states that put in curfews and then suddenly said, now it's illegal to be out after five. So if you're out after five, we can fuck you up. Did you see the ones? I forget, I think there was a few of them out here in California. One of the one of the cities was like Things you can do after the curfew. Go to the store. Go to the groceries. Pick up your children. 
being stuck in traffic. Things you can't do after after curfew. Yeah. Gather in large groups in front of City Hall. Yeah. Ga- I was just like, oh, word. Okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> really? Like, oh, word. Okay. Got Too it. much free speech going on here. Got to stop yeah. that shit. Yeah. Yeah. So- Carry cardboard signs you can't do after. Got it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Great First Amendment we have. So yeah. between 1875 and 1900, nearly a million workers were jailed for public order offenses in just Chicago. Now, a lot of cities also made use of what were called tramp acts. These criminalized traveling without having a visible means of support. So if you were moving around in the city or the world and you didn't weren't you didn't have money, clearly, like you didn't what? clearly have a job, um, you were committing a crime. So in other words, it was illegal in a lot of cities to be an unemployed poor person who left their home. What? So when workers would go on strike and would lose their jobs for going on strike, they were then breaking the law because they were outside in the city and doing something besides looking for a new job. What the? F- <laughs> I know, the- right? That's fucked up. <laughs> land of the free? Like, yeah, are you baby. serious? <laughs> How? Uh, good Lord, man. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, and again, like 80% of the arrests are of these people. So if you're talking about like the police protecting people, you know, yes. who are they protecting? Who are they serving? It's not most of the people. Yeah. No. Anyway. Yeah. Tr- yeah. Tramp acts were, of course, not applied to members of the middle class or wealthy individuals. It was only illegal to be out and not laboring if you were a member of the dangerous classes. Meanwhile, Sheesh. good citizens, respectable citizens, these were all regular terms used, which, again, were all kind of terms for fully white citizens with money yes, and property. Yeah. yeah. These yeah. people were increasingly able, rather than being increasingly suppressed by the police, those folks were increasingly able to call on the police when they felt uncomfortable or afraid. The very first alarm boxes were set up in major cities during this period of time. And these were similar to the dedicated, you know, like on a college campus, there'll be like very well lit, like police phones that like, you know, presumably if you're getting sexually assaulted or something, you'd like run over to it and call the cops. Um, This this was the same basic idea. Um, And they were set up, started being set up in cities in this area, particularly in sit- like parts of cities where there were like businesses and you know upper upper income housing and stuff, uh-huh. um, and but they were locked, so you couldn't. Most people couldn't actually use the alarm boxes, but what? local businessmen and wealthy people were all given keys because the police existed to be their on call personal security. <sighs> Sheesh! <laughs> oh my gosh! Like just all out in the open. Yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot of not a lot of I don't know masks on it and stuff. No, so, it doesn't even seem convenient. I'm like, if I'm no. actively, if I'm rich and I'm being robbed, you think I got time to like figure out which key this is? Yeah, and I I don't think it was mostly them being robbed. I think they would see like, oh, there's a bunch of fucking Italians hanging out in this corner. I'd better get the cops over here to kick their asses. <laughs> like, I don't I don't want Italians on my street corner. Oh, like. They're carroting, you know? Yeah, yeah, look yeah. at that, dude. They're all, there's more than one of them. Must be yeah. a gang. Must be a gang. <laughs> gang injunctions. So, yeah, thanks yeah. to the advances of technology that allowed l- alarm boxes to exist, property owners were able to call on the police department, which was funded by everyone's taxes, in order to protect their private wealth and increasingly just to kind of protect their sense of comfort. So policing tools developed with the need to break up strikes and riots. Patrol wagons began taking to the streets. This allowed police to easily travel in large groups and easily arrest large groups of people. Police Mm. on horseback also started to appear because horses were seen as the most effective way to break up a group of protesters. Officers (laughs) began carrying long nightsticks because breaking in activists' skulls was an increasing part of their job. Yeah. Yeah. 
Throughout the later half of the 1800s, early police departments were faced with the question of whether or not officers should be uniformed and given firearms. Sir Peel, the father of police work, the guy who created the London Metropolitan Police, was pretty stringently against cops packing heat. American police, though, began carrying guns independently by virtue of arming themselves years before such equipment became standard. So decades, really, before police departments are giving everyone a gun, cops are just kind of buying their own guns. Yeah. um, Because it is America. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let's let's be real. Yeah. And Um, and you know what? You're right. It's effective. If it's just like it's like drink again, it's like drinking bleach. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it'll cure. I mean, I'm pretty sure it'll. You won't you drink die enough, from it'll corona. get rid of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't die from coronavirus. You're right. If you drink enough bleach, if for you sure. drink enough bleach, just yeah. like you know what, if you really want to send everybody home, you know what, you're right. Beat the shit out of them with billy clubs and guns. You're right. Mm-hmm. That will yeah. end the protest. So the U.S. police departments first started to kind of like in an organized way issuing arms to police in like the 1840s. Um, And when this started to happen, the American public was extremely skeptical of the idea because, again, we are a a freedom-loving people. And the idea that police would be allowed to deploy deadly force at will against citizens was – extremely unpopular at first people were like what the fuck are you talking about you like again these people we all understand these people are basically the same as thugs and you want to you want to pay have the state pay for them to have guns now like that's not a great idea yeah Yeah, at all yeah (laughs) yeah but as dr gary potter writes quote the value of armed paramilitary presence authorized to use, indeed, deadly force served the interests of local economic elites who had wanted organized police departments in the first place. The presence of a paramilitary force occupying the streets was regarded as essential because such organizations intervened between the propertyed elites and propertyless masses who were regarded as politically dangerous as a class. Now, these propertied classes also considered it essential that police be uniformed so that respectable citizens could identify them when they needed help and so that they would create an obvious visible presence to clamp down on unrest by the dangerous classes. Now, again, uniforms would appear kind of scattershot in different police departments and not for never for all of the police, but for like some units and stuff would be uniformed for a period of time. Many officers resisted uniforms because, again, they're basically criminals, and it made them into yeah. a target. The yeah. very first, like, uniformly uniformed, like, everybody wears a uniform, and that's that's part of the definition of what this, this group is. The very first police force for that mm-hmm. to be standard in was the Pennsylvania State Police. This is in the United okay. States, at least. So the Pennsylvania State Police, the first, like, explicitly fully uniformed police uh, force that okay. we have in this country. Okay. Now. The Pennsylvania State Police were formed in 1903 in the wake of the great anthracite coal strike of 1902. For reference, the strikers were fighting for a 20% pay increase, a reduction from 10 to 8 hours a day in their workday, and a fairer system for weighing coal. This strike caused the price of coal to skyrocket right as winter hit, which put enormous pressure on the state government and on the federal government to put Pennsylvania's mines back to work, because Pennsylvania is like the fucking, the coal basket. Yeah, it's Um, all bad. Yeah. So the great anthracite coal strikers were opposed by a mix of Pinkertons, who were essentially a mercenary police force. We'll talk more about mm-hmm. them a bit later. And okay. the Coal and Iron Police. Now, the Coal and Iron Police was a 5,000-man army run by the coal companies in Pennsylvania, but empowered and funded by the state of Pennsylvania to basically do whatever they had to do to break strikes. This generally involved horrific violence. And over the course of the great anthracite coal strike, the uh, Coal and Iron Police gunned several people down. 
But the strikers Sheesh. were able to put pressure on mine owners for 163 straight days, and they eventually gained, you know, modest concessions. And they didn't get a 20% raise and an eight-hour workday, but they got a 10% raise and a nine-hour workday. So, you know, take okay. what you can. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this was, okay, no, I, I was going to yeah. ask a question, but I, I answered it myself. I mixed it with, like, I thought maybe that was, like, the railway company guy that, like, started a city and had a no, no, yeah. yeah, that's something else. Okay, never mind. That is happening during this period. You know, you're having oh, okay. and that, the, the coal and iron police are kind of the same thing. Like they're, yeah. they're, they're these communities are all miners and using yeah. state, partially at least state funds. The mine companies establish a police department to yeah. keep their mines in order and really to keep their workers from striking. Right. So the Pennsylvania State Police was established after the great anthracite coal strike or anthracite strike or whatever because the state was governed by mine owners and their friends and the state wanted a dedicated paramilitary unit to violently suppress future strikes. The coal and iron police weren't good enough at their jobs. So this is where we get the first uniformed police department in u.s history is specifically okay. like we didn't kill enough people last time we need like a, a force that can really fuck with people who go on strike Sheesh. so in our last episode we discussed the fact that police departments in the american south evolved out of slave patrols which were essentially a counterinsurgency force that similar evolution at least occurred elsewhere in the united states even outside of the south in 1898, the United States went to war with Spain, one of the least justified wars in our long history of unjustified wars. But because Spain was at the time also a terrible colonialist empire, the U.S. wound up fighting them for control of the Philippines. Now, Spain mm -hmm. had controlled that mass of islands quite brutally, and the U.S. continued this tradition, murdering as many as 200,000 civilians battling the insurgency that followed our occupation of the Philippines. Much of this murdering was done by the Philippine Constabulary, the occupation force our government put in place over those islands. And back in the United States, the Pennsylvania State Police were formed directly in imitation of the Philippine Constabulary. So yeah, the, the, and this is still uh, the state police in Pennsylvania today. They started out as people looking at, okay, you remember when we killed, we committed that quasi-genocide in the Philippines? What yeah. if we take all of that advice, use okay. it to make a, a, the Pennsylvania State Police and have them Sheesh. fuck up anyone who goes on strike? That's where the Pennsylvania State Police come from. Uh, what the, okay. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 God, like, uh, oh, yeah. never mind. So, I Pennsylvania just, residents, <laughs> the next time you see a Pennsylvania state police car, <laughs> yeah, be like, hey, man, granddad's an asshole. Anyway, yeah, go on. yeah. yeah. So the Pennsylvania State Police were formed as an all-white, all-native, meaning, you know, born in the United States, force. Oh, um, so that's what you mean by native. Okay, yeah, got yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. White people born in the U.S. as opposed to white people who immigrated here, right? Yeah, like, that's what it. they mean oh, yeah, by you're native. you're a native. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay, buddy. Yeah. So <laughs> the singular purpose of the Pennsylvania State Police was to break the strikes that increasingly popped up in Pennsylvania's coal fields near the turn of the century. Mine workers tended to be a mix of Irish, German, and Eastern European immigrants. A lot of Czechs mm -hmm. were in this kind of like mining population. Also a lot of like Russians and kind of people we don't call Russians today, but were Russians back then because Russia mm -hmm. was bigger. Um, yeah. And it was only logical to the rich white mine owners and their friends in government that the same tactics that worked on undesirable races in Southeast Asia would also work mm -hmm. on undesirable races right here in the United States. 
It was seen as critically important then to stop the Pennsylvania State Police from developing any kind of rapport from the people they controlled. The state police lived in special barracks outside of the mining towns, and this was done to avoid any kind of social intermingling. The only time these people should see the folks they were policing is when they were cracking their fucking skulls. They Mm. rode horses to allow them to more effectively trample strikers. In 1906, 5,000 Winbur, Pennsylvania miners went on strike against their employer, the Berwind White Coal Mining Company. Berwind White was anti-union, and the largely Slovak miners of Winbur wanted to join the United Mine Workers of America. The Pennsylvania police responded by riding into town, murdering three adult uh, uh, miners and one young boy by firing wildly into crowds and brutally trampling anyone who fell down. In letters home to their families, the immigrant miners referred to the Pennsylvania State Police as Cossacks. Do you know what the Cossacks were? I mean, they're still around, but like... Where have I heard that word? It's um, it's an ethnic group in Russia, but it was it, during the the period of the Tsar. These were like basically kind of like these tribes of horse mounted warriors who the Tsar yeah. used as his shock troopers. Primarily, like they fought in wars, but like their biggest job was fucking up riots and protests yeah. and committing some genocide occasionally. Yeah. So these people who are like used to the czar sending in his Cossacks when there's unrest to murder people, they come to the U.S. and they see the Pennsylvania police murdering them. And they're like, oh, these are like the same fucking things as the czar's shock troopers. Yeah. Yeah. Why did we risk, you know, (laughs) coming across a whole ocean before airplanes just to get this? What are we even doing? Like, I thought if shit was different here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, yo, this ain't like the fightful American, mm-hmm. you know, American tale story. I thought was, I thought there was no cats in America. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? I, this is supposed to be better yeah. when we get here. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And y'all came by choice, so that's yeah. the part where I'm just like, why didn't y'all look at each other and be like, you know what, guys? Maybe, maybe a bad call. Was, maybe this was a bad call. Yeah, <laughs> beer's worse too. <laughs> Did the beer sucks? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, on a related note, while doing my research, I came across a January 23rd, 2020 article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about the Pennsylvania State Police, in case you're curious about how the Pennsylvania State Police is doing today. This article points out that in 2002, following a New Jersey scandal over state troopers engaging in racial profiling, the Pennsylvania State Police began collecting racial data on their traffic stops and sending it to the University of Cincinnati for analysis. And to its credit, to their credit, the data revealed that the Pennsylvania State Police were not exhibiting any racial bias and who they pulled over. So that's nice. However, the data did show that they were exhibiting hella bias when it came to who they searched. Troopers Mm. were two to three times as likely to search black or Hispanic drivers as white drivers, (laughs) even though black and Hispanic drivers were vastly less likely to have contraband on their persons than white drivers. Now, and again, this is pretty true across the nation, but it was specifically true for the Pennsylvania State Police. They're like three times Mm. as likely to, to search you if you're black or Hispanic, but white people are the ones actually bringing all the drugs in. So when this data was made public, the Pennsylvania State Police ended their relationship with the University of Cincinnati um, because the University of Cincinnati showed that they were being racist as hell. Uh, And the Pennsylvania State Police is now the largest of only 11 statewide law enforcement agencies in the nation who do not collect racial data during stops. Wow. So that's good. Good on you. Okay, there it is. Pennsylvania State yeah. Police. <laughs> yeah. If I could if I could draw some logical like ties with this yeah. one, like you know why black and brown people are less likely to have contraband on them is because we more likely to be searched. Mm-hmm. That's just it's real it's real simple. You yep. know, like you know, so we're not gonna have it on us. Right. No. Also, and I and I a little a little tangent on this, but like you're, 
And it's so crazy that like it's it's all out of this fear of these, you know, this dangerous class. But like the truth is, we're probably not gonna rob that mm-hmm. Chad or Tyler or Hunter or Karen because the police will come mm-hmm. if we rob you. So the truth is. You're actually more safe than the rest of us because because if if one of us die, if one of us get robbed, please don't care. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? But but I I know the police coming if if Karen has issues. So it's such a like this like this this bias that like is just yeah. a reality of our life. You know, in some ways. Again, I get how it's worked if we're talking sheer pragmatism in favor for this white ruling class, which is why we call it privilege if you can't yeah. follow along, you know what I'm saying? Like it's but it's just it's pri- but it's privilege but not how you think. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like it's it's different. It's not it's not the way you set it up for. Yeah, yeah, sense. it's this yeah. thing. It's like yeah, there was that video going around of I don't know a week or so ago, and maybe a week into the protests, when like those I think it was in L.A. This like big group of like white people all like recited a thing renouncing their white privilege. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't work like that. It can't, you can't now, just it's guys. Yeah, thanks. You, yeah, like yeah, I'm sure you feel good, but like now if you were to get rid of the LAPD, then you actually have reduced your white privilege. That's a there that's is. a step. Then you, you have actually, less privilege. Yeah. 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 I'm like, you could just like use it for good. Yeah. You know, like there's that. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. It's so funny. It's like, we be like, man, some, 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 somebody's, and it sucks to say it because I like, I am deeply and intimately involved with and love white progressive circles. I am involved. These are my friends. This is my family. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it's so funny to watch them like simultaneously do the most and nothing at all at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Like that's such a that's such a grand statement to be like, I'm denouncing my privilege, but that literally does nothing for me. So like yeah. it's like I, it's it's I I can't it's like I don't know. I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, I just, I, just, you know, treat us fairly and help us defund the police. That's all. Like, you know, you ain't got to, what the fuck's you, what, what are you wearing a kente cloth for? Like, just make some good yeah. laws. Make you some know, good laws. Just yeah. make some good laws. Anyway. Or remove bad ones. Either helps. Like, just, <laughs> just one of them things. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I see you're, we're here, we're listening. Yeah. yeah. I see it. Can you just like make some laws though? You know, yeah, unfuck yeah. the fuckness a little bit. Just, just, yeah. Anyway, yeah, that feels like so, a good note to take a break on. I'm just saying. Speaking of unfucking the fuckness, you know what won't <laughs> fuck the fuckness more is these products. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. 
Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back and we're okay, talking about... We're back. Using your about privilege parents. for good. And one way you can use your privilege to good for good is, I don't know, if you're listening and you happen to have purple heart plates and you have a bunch of friends who have to drive substances somewhere, maybe you ought to be the one driving the substances because the police aren't going to give a shit about you. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, veterans for drug yeah. smuggling. is the- <laughs> <laughs> and just, Yes. Yes. Yeah. I want to go on record that like I don't, I'm not trying to go hard. I'm not trying to go hard at, at my white progressives. Like I'm, yeah. I love y'all. I appreciate y'all in the cause. It's just yeah. I just want to say that. Okay. It's a fun day. So yes. Yeah. Uh, it's worth considering within the broader context of the development of U.S. law enforcement that the cops did not always side enthusiastically when cap with capital when it came to struggles over labor. Mm. We previously did a two part episode on the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was a massive coal strike that ended in an enormous pitched battle that included aerial bombardment, machine guns and thousands of combatants on both sides. Mm. One of the great union heroes of that whole mess was Sheriff Sid Hatfield, who gunned down several mercenaries from the Baldwin Feltz detective agencies. Many strikes did take place in small communities out in the middle of nowhere and law enforcement in those places was much more kind of rooted in public spirit these old attitudes of what law enforcement should be than kind of the new attitudes about law enforcement and in those cases you know cops who were sort of like elected or or brought up within the community and felt like a part of it and the community was all union law enforcement would regularly side with the strikers in those situations or it would at least feel too frightened of their neighbors to enthusiastically back the mine companies and this was enough of a problem this wasn't everywhere but it was enough of a problem that Starting in the 1870s, capitalists also began using private police as strike breakers with increasing frequency. And no Hmm. private police agency did a better job of this than the Pinkertons. You know about the Pinkertons? We're talking some Pinkertons now. I do know about the Pinkertons. Yeah, we're talking about some motherfucking Pinkertons. Sheesh. Yeah. We're going to have to do a whole two-parter probably on the Pinkertons at some point. But but you you can't talk about the history of U.S. law enforcement without talking about some motherfucking Pinkertons. Yes. Yeah, the cocksucking Pinkertons to, to <laughs> pull pull from fucking Deadwood. Yes. Um, so here it goes. 
Alan Pinkerton was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1819. His father was a policeman of the for-profit freelance variety, and he was killed on the job. So Alan grew up dirt poor, laboring from an early age to help keep his family fed. He became an activist in his youth, agitating for democratic reform in Great Britain, and he was violenced by the state for speaking out against it. By 1842, he had been forced to flee the country with his wife. The pair wound up living in Dundee, Illinois, and Alan set up a barrel-making business. In 1847, the 28-year-old Alan Pinkerton traveled out to an uninhabited island to look for wood that he could make into more barrels, because that was his thing. He found a campsite there, and the campsite was abandoned but clearly fresh. And because he was a born and bred cop, this guy was like kind of in his fucking bones, a cop, uh, yeah. Alan decided not to mind his own damn business. He returned that night and hid nearby until the camp's occupants, a group of counterfeiters, returned. Alan instantly went to the mm. sheriff and reported them, and the gang was arrested. So, mm. not my kind of dude, but like fundamentally yeah. a cop, like emotionally yeah. a cop. So, counterfeiting was a massive problem for business owners in the early United States, and the local merchants made Pinkerton into a hero for busting this group. He started getting offers to investigate other crimes, and very quickly, Alan Pinkerton had become the go-to man for busting counterfeit coin operations in Illinois. He was soon deputized by the sheriff of Kane County, Illinois, and in 1849, he became the city of Chicago's first full-time detective. By 1850, Allen founded Pinkerton's Detective Agency. In less than 20 years, it had expanded to include branches in New York and Philadelphia. Allen quickly expanded outside of just detective work. He created Pinkerton's Protective Police Patrol, a group of uniformed night watchmen that local businesses could hire to protect their shops. Pinkerton men, some of whom were women, also acted as undercover cops, often feeding information on criminal syndicates directly to regular police. The Pinkertons grew to become a legendary force in the Old West, helping to hunt down criminals like Jesse James. And there is some moral complexity here. This isn't an easy story, because while Alan Pinkerton was absolutely just a total fucking cop, he was also a really staunch and consistent abolitionist. Part of what drew him to hunt down Jesse James was the fact that James had been an enthusiastic Confederate soldier. Pinkerton, meanwhile, had worked for the Underground Railroad and had helped to guard Abraham Lincoln. But even when Pinkerton targets were clearly bad people like James, their methods were often still unaccountably brutal. The Pinkerton agency actually raided Jesse James's house. It was basically like a no-knock raid that they carried out. And Mm -hmm. they fucked up and attacked during a time when James was not present. And instead, during the raid, they blew off his mother's arm and murdered his eight-and-a-half-year-old younger brother. Um, Like, yeah, yeah, this is is a fucking no-knock raid. Yeah. Yeah. So again, even when they pick the right bad guys, they wind up murdering an eight-year-old. <laughs> like, Sheesh. Not great. Not no. great. So later in life, Alan Pinkerton hit upon the brilliant idea of writing semi-fictionalized accounts of the most famous detective cases in Pinkerton history. And these books became some of the very first true crime stories in the history of literature. But while the agency was famous for tales of sleuthing and daring do while confronting bandits and bank robbers, the bulk of the Pinkerton agency's business came from protecting capital by fighting labor. The first Pinkerton strike breakers were hired in 1866 when miners in Illinois went on strike and the mining company needed protection for their scabs, which are the people like the company brings in to work the mines when the workers refuse. Now, over the years, the Pinkertons developed a standard set of procedures with armed men escorting scabs into factories and mines while Pinkerton guards and towers aimed machine guns at strikers to keep them away. Alan Pinkerton died in 1884 and his son took over the agency and doubled down on strike breaking. By 1892, the Pinkertons had helped to break 77 strikes. Wow. Now, after 1892, though, 
the agency really stopped doing as much overt strike breaking. They shifted more into industrial espionage and infiltrating labor movements rather than confronting them with guns. And the reason for this was because of a vicious battle that took place in the town of Homestead, Pennsylvania. Here we go. Yeah, the Homestead Strike. So Here we go. Yep. Homestead was a steel town built around yeah. and for a huge steel plant owned by the Carnegie Steel Company. You know, you've all we all hear know the Carnegie Foundation. We hear about them on like yeah. PBS and shit. Yeah. This is where that money comes from. So in 1890, the price of rolled steel products has started to fall, and the manager of the homestead pr- plant, a dude named Henry Frick, decided to cut wages. Neither his wages nor his boss, our Andrew Carnegie's wages, were to be cut, of course. And in fact, course, to maintain not. their wages, they had to c- take the company losses out of their workers' pockets. And they decided the best way to do that was to destroy the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, which was at the time the nation's largest craft union. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because Andrew Carnegie was, you know, one of the good ones, if we're talking about millionaires. Like, that's how a lot of people would have viewed him at the time. Um, He Mm. was vocally pro-labor. Like, he made public statements in favor of labor and saying that unions had a reason to exist. And this was in keeping with his reputation as a philanthropist, you know, a millionaire Mm -hmm. you could trust. But, of course, the instant his profits were threatened, Carnegie had no time for the union anymore and resisted, uh, like, efforts. Yeah, exactly. So, like, he's he's like, yeah, unions are fine when the money's good, but when his money is threatened, unions got to go. That's Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. So. In the, uh, in the spring of 1892, Carnegie instructed Frick to push company workers to make as much steel as possible before the union contract expired that June, because the union contract expired, and then they were going to have to negotiate a new one, and the mm-hmm. union didn't want to make less money, but Carnegie wanted to pay them less. So if the union failed to accept the new terms that Carnegie and Frick offered, Andrew was just going to have the plant manager shut the factory down until the laborers relented. Uh, he wrote to Frick, we approve of every anything you do. We are with you to the end. Wow. Now, Carnegie wasn't physically with Frick, of course. He was off at one of his many palaces. This one was in Scotland, just kind of chilling. Um, yeah. So Frick was left to figure out how to confront labor on his own. And I'm going to quote now from a write-up on the strike in PBS's American Experience series. With Carnegie's carte blanche support, Frick moved to slash wages. Plant workers responded by hanging Frick in effigy. The union fought not just for better wages, but also for a say in America's new industrial order. Though Carnegie and Frick had brought unions to heel at their other mills, Homestead remained untamed. Workers mm-hmm. believed that because they had worked in the mill, they had mixed their labor with the property of the mill, explains historian Paul Krauss. They believed that in some way the property had become theirs. Not that it wasn't Andrew Carnegie's, not that they were the sole proprietors of the mill, but that they had an entitlement to the mill. And I think in a fundamental way, the conflict at Homestead in 1892 was about these two conflicting ideas of property. Now, on June 25th, Frick announced that he would no longer negotiate with the union. Now he would only deal with the workers individually. Leaders at Amalgamated were willing to concede on almost every level, except the dissolution of their union. On June 29th, despite the union's willingness to negotiate, Frick closed down his open hearth and armor plate mills, locking out 3,800 men. So there's a lot that's interesting here. One of them is that, like, a lot of these guys, you know, these these guys aren't super educated. They haven't read, no. you know, their marks or whatever. But they kind of recognize this idea of, like, oh, you know, not that, like, worker, they weren't, like, workers should own the means of production. But they were, like, workers should co-own the means of production. At like, least, that's kind right? Of the, yeah, yeah. yeah, at least. That's kind of the idea these guys kind of come to of their own yeah. accord. 
Now, the union men desperately tried to contact Andrew Carnegie once uh, Frick closed the plant because, again, they thought he was a good guy. Like, he'd said that unions were okay. They thought that he just didn't understand what was really happening because he was so distant. And if they if they could let him know how bad things for the, were for them and how bad Frick was treating them, then he would back them. But, of course, Andrew Carnegie didn't give a shit about these people. He was on vacation, and he had no time for them. He did, however, have time for Frick. He advised mm-hmm. Frick that now was their time to destroy the union, believing that his workers would surely give it up if it meant keeping their jobs, even it reduced salary. His workers disagreed. Only 750 homestead men had belonged to the union before all this happened, but 3,000 of the plant's 3,800 workers agreed to strike once Frick closed the doors. Now, to combat them, Frick built a fortress to keep them out, including a 12-foot-high, three-mile-long fence topped with barbed wire. Deputy sheriffs were sworn in to man the fence with rifles. But those sheriffs and their families lived in Homestead, and when 3,000 of their neighbors marched on Fort Frick, as it was known, all these deputy sheriffs were like, ah, I'm not going to kill all these people I live with. Like, that seems like a bad call. So they laid down their arms and left. Now, workers then occupied the plant and effectively took over the entire town of Homestead. For the very first time in American history, laborers had quite literally seized the means of production. Now, Andrew Carnegie was not a fan of this. Uh, of he didn't not. take it lying down. Well, he, he actually probably was lying down in Scotland, <laughs> but he hired a bunch of armed Pinkertons to not take it lying down yes. for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the Pinkertons, 300 and some odd of them, got on a bunch, a couple of barges and attempted an aquatic landing at Homestead, essentially a sort of capitalist Normandy, or more accurately, Gallipoli. The heavily armed Pinkertons expected this to be like any of the other dozens of strikes they'd broken. You know, they might have to gun down a few people, but these dirt-poor factory serfs surely would not be able to compete with their modern Winchester rifles. 300 mercenaries with modern guns were sure to be enough to break Homestead's resistance. And again, Carnegie and Frick had underestimated the men of Homestead. As one leader recalled, to be confronted with a gang of loafers and cutthroats from all over the country coming here, there as they thought to take their jobs, why, they naturally wanted to go down and defend their homes and their property with their lives, with force if necessary. Of course. Yeah, and defend their lives the men of Homestead did. When the Pinkertons landed, they were warned not to step off their barge. When they ignored that warning, people started fucking shooting at them, and a huge <laughs> gun battle began. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Where's fucking, that movie? Where's that movie? I don't know. There might be a movie about it. There probably there sh- is. There should be more. So the Pinkertons used their steel barges as floating bunkers, firing out at a crowd of homestead citizenry. The homesteaders had shit for guns, mostly a handful of hunting rifles and old muskets. But they had a lot of those, and they also had a 20-pound cannon that they'd got from somewhere. They had dynamite, which they tossed like grenades. A local hardware merchant donated all of the ammunition in his store to the crowd, and for 12 hours, the gun battle raged on. By 6 a.m. the next day, more than 5,000 spectators from Pittsburgh had shown up to watch from the riverbanks. At 8 a.m., yeah, it's fucking like it's a live movie. Yeah, we gotta go see the war. There's a war going on next door. Hey, it's down the street, <laughs> yeah. dude. Let's yeah, go. Yeah. I guess I'll take a look. Yeah. yeah. By 8 a.m., the Pinkertons had tried to land again. Workers fired their cannon and attempted to scuttle the barges by ramming them with both a burning raft and a burning railroad car. What None the- of this quite worked. Yeah, they were they were really giving it a shot. <laughs> they committed. <laughs> Just like, look, look. Yeah. We gonna hold the line, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't shoot through these barges, but we can throw giant flaming things at the barges, and that'll probably fuck them up a bit. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. 
Now, none of this sunk the barges, but the sheer rate of fire from the crowd was terrifying to the Pinkertons who cowered inside. One recalled, The noise that they made on the shore was awful, and it made us shake in our boots. We were pinned in like rats, and we went at the fighting like desperate wild men. All of the men were under the beds and bunks, crying and trembling. Another Pinkerton recalled, It was a place of torment. When men were lying around wounded and bleeding and piteously begging someone to give them a drink of water, but no one dared Sheesh. to get a drop, although water was all around us. It was a wonder we did not all go crazy or commit suicide. The Pinkertons tried to surrender four times, and each white flag they rose up was shot down by a sniper on the board. <laughs> like, like, we're not done shooting at you guys yet. <laughs> yeah, your friendship. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, though, the crowd did su- accept the Pinkertons' surrender. The mercenary cops were led onto the shore, beaten and clubbed and pelted with stones as they were taken to the local jail and eventually sent out of town by train. Three to eight Pinkertons were killed, along with a similar number of strikers, and dozens and dozens of people were wounded. It was a victory for the laboring folks of Homestead, but sadly not one that lasted. Frick next asked the governor to send in the militia. And since the state government basically existed to serve the desires of wealthy mine owners and the like, the government said yes. The strikers knew better than to try to do battle with the militia, who had machine guns, and so they surrendered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Homestead was put under martial law. Carnegie was able to move in his scab workers. And of course, this is where things get morally complex again, because the scab workers Carnegie picks were a lot of them were black um and in fact these were like the very first black steel workers in the state yeah. um and this led to a horrible race riot as 2000 white union men assaulted 50 black families and a number of people were badly injured in the resulting gun battle and this is a, mm. a regular story throughout the labor movement is like yeah our workers are on strike black people we can bring them in we can pay them less um and like it'll it'll like they don't like there's not a solidarity between these poor black yeah. and these poor white people um yeah for obvious reasons, because poor white people have been real shitty to poor black people, but like yeah. it, it provided an opportunity for people like Carnegie. Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, who desperately needed work. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Woo. Yep. Yep. Not great. It's complicated. Yes. Complicated history here. Yes. So, by November of 1892, the amalgamated union was finished. Strike leaders were charged with murder, and 160 union men were charged with lesser crimes. Now, local juries did refuse to convict them, because, again, the juries were made up of the people who'd taken part in this uprising. But this was the end of unionization in Homestead for a while. Once victory was well and truly achieved, Carnegie cabled Frick, Life worth living again! First happy morning since July! To celebrate, he immediately cut wages, expanded the workday to 12 hours, and fired 500 people. Good stuff. Good stuff. But after Homestead, the Pinkertons were never quite the same. And it would be fair to say that the whole experience made the agency a lot less willing to go engage in physical aggression. But the agency still exists to this day and still works Mm -hmm. as a private police force for the rich and powerful. In 2018, when workers for Frontier Communications went on strike in West Virginia and Normal Virginia, the company hired the Pinkerton Agency. (laughs) Now part of Securitas, a massive Swedish corporation, Pinkerton basically acts as a rentable FBI for megacorporations dealing with labor disputes. I'm going to quote now from a write-up in the New Republic. Okay, wait, before you quote this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you say West Virginia and regular Virginia? I sure did. That is, I, <laughs> I, I say this as, as a statement of fact. I attribute no value, good or bad, to this statement. But West Virginia is a time warp. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, West Virginia is currently 100 years ago. 
Yeah, it's certainly not regular Virginia. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. so. When you said that, and yeah. it's something that you know, I'm in a group text with a bunch of different touring artists. Mm-hmm. Like we're all just homies, but we all talk about like, yo, I feel like West Virginia is back to the future. Like it's mm-hmm. the internet hasn't been invented in West Virginia. Like we don't what? Why is this state forty years ago? Yeah. I, yeah, it's a trip to me. I anyway. So yeah, yeah. West Virginia and regular Virginia just mm-hmm. I it I almost feel vindicated that I'm not I'm not the only person. Me and my eight friends ain't yeah. the only people that feel like I yeah. don't understand what's happening in West Virginia right now. Like I why? feel like everyone who is driven from regular Virginia to West Virginia immediately had the realization like, oh I'm not in regular Virginia anymore. This isn't Virginia anymore. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know why it's both called Yeah. Y- y'all should change our name because this is this is not the same. Yeah. North Carolina, South Carolina, few differences. Both, yeah. Carolinas, you know, though. But you're Carolinas. Virginia, West Virginia, nah, yeah. that's, that's a different planet. I mean, I'll say there's a big South Dakota, North Dakota split. But also, why the two? There's like nine <laughs> people in both states. Come on, y'all. <laughs> and poppy seeds. There's yeah. nine people with poppy seeds in, in mm-hmm. Dakotas. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. We've. <laughs> yeah, okay. Anyway, I just read the quote. Yeah. I just had to acknowledge. Yeah regular virginia that's how i feel that's how i feel yeah so in the modern day the pinkerton agency basically and it's just called pinkerton now um acts as an a rentable fbi for mega corporations fucking over their workers and i'm going to quote now from a write-up in the new republic Pinkerton's hardly the only firm to advertise such services, but its history sets it apart, and the company embraces its legacy. With one call to Pinkerton, you gain access to our global network of resources, providing boots on the ground when and where you need them, it promises. A securitous aid for the firm lists labor demonstrations as among the risks it can monitor. Trouble can happen anytime, anywhere, a narrator intones. Yeah, the the tones... your yeah. tone is just was so triggering. Yeah. Like I had a physical <laughs> response to that. Like, oh my God. Anyway. Yeah. Like, the Pinkerton promise is attractive to some Silicon Valley firms. The Guardian reported on March 16th that Facebook and Google have both retained Pinkerton to monitor staff for leaks. Among other services, Pinkerton offers to send investigators to coffee shops or restaurants near a company's what? campus to eavesdrop on employee conversations, Olivia Salon reported. So Pinkerton's still out there, still fucking just, with labor. Yeah. Just just rich boy hall yeah. monitors. Yeah. Like, what relax, if the relax, F- bro? Yeah. Okay. yeah. You know how you know how little accountability the FBI has currently? What if yeah. it just had none? <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Stay with me here. Yeah. FBI that we could pay to do whatever we want. Yeah. 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 Like, you know how that FBI agent who was doing a backflip at a club and accidentally shot that guy when his gun fell out? You know who he got in trouble? What if there was even less accountability than that? <laughs> I, I, I almost, I almost forgot that happened. Yeah, I know oh it was God. wild. That happened. Yes. <laughs> Good lord. Oh wow. So prop, we're at the end of another episode, another chapter in police history. Yeah. We um, are. I haven't as of yet finished writing the third episode, but we're going to talk some about the KKK. We're okay. going to talk some about lynchings. We're going to talk some about how the police departments stopped lynchings by just deciding to torture black people instead. It's not going to be It's not pretty. Good. We're going to talk yeah. about uh, talk about <laughs> LAPD recruiting southern people from post Jim Crow. Yeah, yeah yes. we're going to have to talk about that some. Yeah. We have a lot more to talk about, but Yeah. For now, what we should talk about is your pluggables. Yes. Uh com. Uh, that's all the poetry and the, in the music and the art and the, uh, 
the coffee paraphernalia and the podcasts, um, Hood Politics and the Red Couch Pod. Red Couch is me and my wife. Uh, Hood Politics, exactly what it sounds like. I'm basically taking all that you know about politics and just explaining them in street terms. Um, As to, in a lot of ways, I just, I really just want people to like realize your politicians aren't smarter than you. You just you you think you you think you don't belong at the table, but what I'm trying to tell you is what this whole episode mm-hmm. and series is proven. They just people and they just gangbang it. They're just yeah gangbang it. So if you understand, if you accept that your politicians are gangbangers, and all this is just gang life, you can understand politics. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I like that nobody speak video that like it did real well. It's like, you know, yeah. this is like all these people. These are just different gangs, and we decide this gang gets all the respect. This um, is basically it. You know, yeah. When, when okay, so when we all know, I mean, I like really name a Republican politician that actually likes Donald Trump. Like they, y'all don't like him, but I get it. He's from your hood. Yeah. So since he's from your hood. You keep your mouth shut in public. That's just, that's why nobody's, to- that's why you told the line. It's like, nah, he's from my hood. I can't, I mean, he's he from my hood. I get it. Anyway, yeah. Don't you sell, don't you sell a shirt that says, uh, some, yes, you have a shirt that says, yes, pol- politics is just gangbanging or something like that. Yeah. Politics is gangbanging in nice suits. There it is. Yep. That's the t-shirt. Oh, yep. and I actually, I'm going to help your plug. I ordered a worst year ever t-shirt. It's not here yet. Aww. I ordered a Thank shirt you. from your store. Look at that. Look at that. This synergy. I like the one. He has a shirt that he sells in his store that says Republican, Democrat, awake. I was like, okay, awake. I need that. I need that immediately. Check. Yeah. Awake. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I yes. do want to, while we're talking about gangs and what they are in reality, I, I wanted to, have you ever heard of Smedley Butler prop? I want to talk about Smedley Butler for just a second before we no. close out. Put me down. Put me Smedley on. Smedley Butler was a major general. He's one of the highest decorated soldiers in U.S. history. Home dude won two medals of honor um, for gallantry under fire and became a hardcore anti-capitalist in in his his later days. I want to quote from like two different speeches of his. I spent 33 years and four months in active military service as a member of this country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from second lieutenant to major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. Sheesh. Yeah. Sheesh. Yeah, Smedley Butler. (laughs) Smedley Butler, you said you said that you said the quiet thing out loud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's and it's like and it's the obvious. That's crazy, yeah. man. Yeah. Dang. All right. All, All right. right, dudes. We we got some Smedley in here. We'll be back to cops on part three. Have a great one, everybody. Thank you again, Prop. And uh, Thank I, you. we'll see you all next week with more of The Police. <laughs> <laughs> Not the band. Not the band. Behind the Police is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 